welcome to to this the uh, the inaugural event of the LSE's program for the study of religion and non-religion. My name is Matthew Engelke, and I teach in the anthropology department here, and I'm also uh, the coordinator of this new program, and I'll be chairing this evening's event. Uh, the idea for this program began almost a year ago during a series of conversations with colleagues in the anthropology department and elsewhere in the school, most notably the pro-directors and the members of the Forum on Religion. It was indeed the Forum on Religion launched in 2008 that established the LSE as such an important place for debates about social thought, faith, and society. And the Forum on Religion will be continuing serving as tonight as the public-facing wing of the program. The new program, however, aims to be something more than a forum for events. The new program is designed as a platform not only to disseminate arguments, ideas, and opinions, but to generate the research that goes into them. Much of that research already gets done at LSE. There are academics here in anthropology, sociology, government, international relations, philosophy, the European Institute, and many other parts of the school who work on religion and society. But one of the program's goals will be to get staff and research students at LSE into further conversation with one another about the work that needs to be done <coughs> in order to understand any number of issues pertaining to the conceptual and empirical relationships between religious and non-religious modes of thought, belief, and practice. It's been important for those of us involved in setting up the program to include non-religion in its scope. We can speak of the secular, of course, but the secular is a tired term and needs some rest or at least some help. Indeed, as productive as the secular religious formation has been, it's one that obscures as much as it reveals. By emphasizing the more general relation between religion and non-religion, our goal is to highlight the connections between religion and its other others, including not only humanism and atheism, both of which have become increasingly important within the public square and everyday life, and one of which, of course, is a key topic this evening, but also, for instance, the kinds of topics that have long interested anthropologists, such as spiritualism and animism. What all of these other others do is force us to consider the order of things, the ways in which we divide the world and then put it back together again. A fundamental premise of the program is that to speak about religion or non-religion is to speak as well of politics, economy, kinship, and law. Religion and its others have not kept to the positions assigned them by a certain reading of Enlightenment thought. And so we come to the rationale behind this evening's event and the aptness of our inaugural speakers. For each in their own way, both Giles Fraser and John Gray have asked probing and provocative questions about how we should understand the matters at hand. Giles Fraser is the priest in charge at St. Mary's Newington, a parish encompassing the <coughs> Elephant and Castle here in South London. Currently writing a column for The Guardian, he has also written for The Church Times, The Daily Mail, and The Socialist Worker. 
among his many other positions. He was, you don't, you don't, you don't say that sentence very often. <laughs> among his many other positions, he was chaplain and then lecturer in philosophy at Wadham College, Oxford, between 1997 and 2006, and from 2009 until late last year, the canon chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral. He resigned his position at St. Paul's last October over concerns with the chapter's handling of the Occupy LSE movement. Not this LSE. Not, yeah, yeah. not this LSE, the other LSE. John Gray is Professor Emeritus of <coughs> European Thought here at the school. Was. I'm retired now. Can you be a professor? Oh, emeritus professor. Right. Professor Emeritus, yeah. Yeah. You're still Professor Emeritus. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Like Reverend Dr. Fraser, Professor Gray is also an academic whose work has reached well beyond the academy through regular contributions to the broadsheets and numerous magazines, as well as in such books for which he's incredibly well known, such as Straw Dogs, Black Mass, and most recently, The Immortalization Commission. Professor Gray is also the author of numerous other scholarly works, most notably his pathbreaking studies of liberalism, and in particular, the work of John Stuart Mill. The format for tonight will be as follows. Giles Fraser will speak for 20 minutes, followed by 15 minutes of reflection from Professor Gray. Uh, our guests will then be in conversation with one another for about 15 minutes, and we will then have about half an hour of questions from the floor. Uh, the event will be followed tonight by a reception up on the fifth floor of uh, the old building here in the senior common room to which you're all invited for uh, a glass of wine. Before welcoming our speakers, I'd like to acknowledge the many sources of support for tonight's event, as well as the program more generally. None of this would have been possible without the generosity of the LSE Annual Fund, the school's pro-directors, the Department of Anthropology, or the members of the Forum on Religion. I'd like to thank them all and thank you all for coming. So now, please join me in welcoming Giles Fraser and John Gray. Thank you, Matthew. Um, great to be here. Um, just a couple of things before I start. Um, I mean, I'm not really going to give uh, a lecture as such here. I'm going to, I was uh, thinking about downgrading it to a talk, and um, I think I really want to downgrade it to a conversation with some provocations to start with, and I think the conversation with you and with John will be the, the, the stuff of this, but um, a provocation for a few moments to start with. Um, Wittgenstein uh, famously hated his graduate students and uh, he hated his graduate students because he hated people trying to be clever. And he hated people trying to be clever because he thought that when people were trying to be clever, they obscured the really interesting stuff. And in fact, it's only when you say things that sound incredibly stupid that you get to the heart of what it is that people think and try and untie the knots there. So um, rather foolishly, I'm going to try and talk foolishly um, and quite personally to start with about why I find it incredibly difficult to debate with 
um, atheists, and I guess I'm uh, thinking quite largely about new atheists, and I'm thinking quite specifically about doing that in the media, which I'm called to do on a number of occasions. And in order to try and get to the heart of uh, why I find it such a, a difficult thing to do, why there seems to be so much talking past each other, I, I, I want, if I may, just to start with a few autobiographical reflections about my own faith journey and how that shapes the way I uh, come to Christianity and think about Christianity and um, perhaps extrapolate from my own faith journey a little bit uh, about what Christianity might or might not be. As it happens, uh, I was uh, converted, uh, and I use that word advisedly, um, just a few hundred yards away from where we are now. Um, the moment of conversion, if I can call it that, was sitting in the library in King's College, London. Uh, I had been, throughout the 80s, a student of um, the Wittgensteinian uh, philosopher Norman Malcolm, and he gave um, weekly seminars to a small group of, um, I think they were rather picked students. Um, there were about six or seven of us. And we used to go through the philosophical investigations line by line for about two or three years. We only got to about page 20, I think, um, <laughs> with him. It was incredibly slow going. Um, and it, it's taken me a long time uh, to really reflect and understand if I really have what actually went on uh, during that period. I arrived at university beforehand up in Newcastle as a uh, secular atheist philosophy student wanting to go into politics, um, coming from a pretty secular background and having some sort of background in public school religion, but that's about it, and um, uh, assumed, uh, like I think most of my generation, certainly in philosophy department, a pretty... Um, atheistic worldview. Um, I think I was a sort of straightforward empiricist, if you can't smell it or touch it or feel it, it doesn't exist. And um, it was during my time there that the politics fell away and I started reading people like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard who um, introduced me to the idea that religion might itself be important. And, and through that started reading the Gospels, and in particular St. Matthew's Gospel, because that was Wittgenstein's favourite, and that was the one that I was going to start with. And spent my time sort of as an experiment going along to church and sitting at the back. Now the funny thing about this, and people, friends of mine would say, oh, you know Giles, he has this extraordinary hobby. His extraordinary hobby is that he goes to church, and everybody used to laugh because that was a really unlikely thing for me to do. I was trouble at school and at university. And um, this, this uh, unusual hobby, which in a sense is what it was, was something that I just did more of, read more of, and participated in more, um, without necessarily, and here is that crucial, complicated thing, believing it. And then here, uh, in the library in, in King's College, there came a point where I realised, and this is the best phrase I can come up with to explain what it was, that I wasn't on the inside, on the outside looking into this world, um, studying it um, like some anthropologist, but I was on the inside looking out. And it was a realisation that I was on the inside of this world looking out, that the world had shaped and changed me. 
And it was that realization was the realization that I had become a Christian. Now, uh, I've wondered to myself uh, at that point how many of my views about the world actually changed. Um, Wittgenstein has, and I'm sorry I've got a whiteboard here and I'm going to draw, uh, for those of you who don't know, I imagine most of you do, but um, I'm going to draw that dreaded duck rabbit. Um, and whenever you do, you always get it wrong. So just give me a moment to try and draw a duck rabbit. If it's unconvincing, then we'll... Um, That one's just about to. They're never very good, um, my duck rabbits. Um, so uh, Jastrow's famous duck rabbit that Wittgenstein makes uh, quite a lot of in the investigations um, uh, is used to, to, um, uh, to illustrate what Wittgenstein talks about as aspect perception. And uh, the interesting thing about this, uh, these lines on, on the uh, page here is that um, perhaps you, uh, I don't know which one this looks more like, but say it looks more like a rabbit, and if you can't see that it's a rabbit, it's because I've got a bad drawing, you can draw it much better. Um, say it looks like a rabbit, and all you can see is that it's a rabbit, and a rabbit is, is all the world that you know, and then suddenly someone tells you, and it also can look like a duck. And then you go, oh my word, oh my word, now I can see it. Now the interesting thing about that change of perception about the lines is, do you believe the lines go anywhere different on the page? Do you believe anything different about, as it were, the object itself or the lines that are drawn? And for me, it changed everything. It changed the way in which I saw the world. But I'm not entirely sure that it changed what I thought the world was or where I thought the lines were. There was something that I wasn't at all sure that had happened in that conversion that was supposed to happen. Everything had happened and nothing had happened. There hadn't been, as it were, a change in philosophical content uh, about, my, uh, about what I thought the world's furniture consisted of, metaphysically. Um, it strikes me that that may well have been the same um, of those um, uh, disciples on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus goes to them and say, come follow me. He does not say, take a philosophy test. Um, you need to know all these things about the nature of the world or metaphysics. Um, they respond to the come follow me by doing precisely that. And that is the beginning of the journey. Now, I've tried to maintain a position um, for a number of years that I'm an orthodox Christian believer rooted in the scriptures and that the metaphysical, uh, philosophical, uh, apologetic tradition about Christianity is one that gets imposed upon Christianity uh, at a later date. And, you know, if you do, if you do, um, I talked for a while the um, Oxford Philosophy of Religion paper and it always strikes me as bizarre that so many of the questions that are asked in there uh, uh, assume uh, an understanding of God that one doesn't actually find in the scriptures themselves all sorts of words like ontological or even omniscient that are not words that you find in the Hebrew scriptures or in the New Testament it seems to me that what happened is that um, in the second and third centuries the, um, uh, this sort of um, Hebrew uh, the sect that had come out of the, 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 um, the Near East uh, tried to recommend itself to a, um, 
a, a, a posh um, Roman world that um, was uh, in love with Greek thought, and so it, it trans transmuted itself into uh, a different sort of thing with the apologists like Justin Martyr and so forth, trying to uh, put together, splice Plato um, onto Christianity, and Nietzsche then uh, later on talks about um, Christianity as popular Platonism. And that combination of of Christianity and Greek thought, metaphysical thought, becomes incredibly powerful combination. Um, Heidegger calls it the onto-theological tradition, and to try and to try and unpick that, even to try and say something about the world um, outside of that tradition, becomes incredibly difficult. Heidegger wrote *Being in Time*, and his whole language is is straining to try and um, come up with terms about the world that are not in hock to that tradition. It's incredibly difficult. So what I'm trying to say here is that um, when, you, when I find I'm arguing with uh, atheists, um, off, and especially a sort of new atheists, they assume that uh, I have a metaphysical worldview that I'm not really sure I have at all, and I'm certainly struggling to avoid. There's a wonderful um, book, Michael Buckley, on the origins of, of modern atheism, um, which, if you haven't read it, it's not a book that's terribly widely known. Uh, Buckley says that one of the moments, uh, as a Jesuit writer, one of the moments um, that's rather crucial in, in uh, Christian history, Christian thought, is when, in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, the church begins to feel threatened by the rise of what was then new atheism, and they turned to the philosophers of the day to defend Christianity. And what he says happens is they started to, uh, the, the church, as it were, put the defense of, uh, of Christianity in the hands of philosophers. Philosophers used this tradition, uh, and, and actually uh, the church um, placed itself where it was sort of alienated its best arguments or its, its, its truest nature. It didn't talk of, uh, out of a sort of scriptural imagination. It talked out of a sort of philosophical imagination, and it lost that argument. And, uh, and I think there's something fundamentally right about that, uh, that diagnosis. There is just one last thing. I've probably been talking for too long. Just one long last, last thing about this. Um, many would say to me um, that, well, that's all very well, but actually... Um, the scriptures themselves, and I would want to be rooted quite scripturally, the scriptures themselves uh, do uh, seek to describe the world in this sort of bigger, fuller way um, that the metaphysicians do, and that that has a sort of philosophical content that um, can't be avoided, that there is this thing called God, there is this thing called theism um, that can be defined philosophically even in the scriptures. Well, I mean, I suppose the content here is that, uh, of this lecture is that I have a, a problem with theism and not with God. And the story that I'd like to just end on to illustrate this is just the story from the book of Exodus, um, where Moses goes up the mountain um, to, to meet God, the formative story of the Christian mystical tradition, probably. And the higher that God goes up the mountain, the higher that Moses goes up the mountain, the more the clouds come down and the less he is able to see. At the same time, on the ground, 
there are people worshipping the golden calf. Now, the point about the golden calf, I take it, is not that it's golden and that they're worshipping money, but they're worshipping a reified version of God, that God is a thing. And I think that's what happens philosophically uh, in, in a tradition that comes from Plato and is reinvented all the way through the Western philosophical tradition. Um, up the mountain, the higher one goes up the mountain, and the less one is able to see, the less one is able to describe God. God comes apart in your hands. That God ends up not being a thing. And a lot of the, the, the mystics... Uh, would end up saying there is no thingliness to God. God is the, uh, existence is not a category of God. Is is some of the sort of things that mystics would say. Um, wh what I'm trying to get at here is that um, those of us who want to try and uh, pull apart the philosophical tradition, the ontotheological tradition, from the sort of scriptural tradition, find it incredibly difficult to argue with those people who assume that we, that Christians believe in this thing called metaphysics. That would not be that on which I base my faith. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. Understanding is not the basis on which one has faith, but it is, uh, it is what one does to try and understand the faith one has. I arrived at Theological College um, a few years after this conversion with the bloody hell what am I doing here it all seemed so groundless and baseless and I had no idea what was rooting me and it felt like that I'd written checks that I couldn't intellectually cash it seems to me that is an authentic Christian position if faith is always seeking understanding rather than understanding is the basis on which one behaves. It starts, Wittgenstein says, with what you do. He liked to quote Goethe, in the beginning is the deed, come follow me. Well, thank you very much, Giles. Um, you ended with a story, a biblical story. I'll begin with a more secular one. Um, not long before he died at a great age, um, P.G. Woodhouse was interviewed by someone from the BBC who asked what I thought was an extraordinarily good question of him. He said, Mr. Woodhouse, do you have any religious beliefs? Now, I think that's a terribly good question. It's not, what do you believe? Mr. Woodhouse. It's, do you have any religious beliefs? And Woodhouse replied, frightfully hard to say, you know. <laughs> now, now, I think that's a lot subtler than 98% of what philosophers have written about religion and belief, because one of the things where I share uh, Giles's position and I speak as someone who doesn't belong to any religion and never has, and don't see myself as ever doing so, though you never know, um, uh, is that I don't treat belief as being central to uh, that large extended family of human practices we call religion. Of course, as Giles has brought out, it's become central in various Western 
religious traditions because of the attempt that was made to harness uh, Athens uh, and Jerusalem, to harness uh, Greek philosophy to uh, um, biblical thinking. Um, and so it is true, as a matter of fact, that if you go out into the street, and some of you are empirical anthropologists, you might have done this, and ask people um, what they think religion is about, they will very commonly reply nowadays that it's about belief, at least in the West, not everywhere. And I think one of the things which is um, uh, uh, Matthew uh, mentioned in his remarks, I think, is very relevant here, which is that when we're talking about religion, um, we should be uh, very um, self-aware and self-critical about the categories we're using, like the religious and the secular and the non-religious. And this, i give you an anecdote here. A number of, many years ago actually, must have been about 20 years ago, um, I was in conversation with a, um, a scholar from one of the um, Ivy League universities who had been doing some work on uh, religion in Japan, and this person uh, showed me a, a list and, on which I'm not expert, but I, I know a little for various reasons, and showed me a, a list of figures that had been, they'd produced. And when I looked at it, the first thing I noticed was that, according to this list, um, Christians numbered in uh, two figures in Japan, that's to say they're well over 10%. Now, um, my understanding was then and is now that those who identify themselves as Christians in Japan would be something between 1% and perhaps 4% or 5%. So I asked, um, you know, how did you do this? And uh, I was told, well, there are various markers and indicants of religious uh, practice and belonging, and so we applied those. So I followed this a little bit further, and I said, you are aware, aren't you, that in Japan it's very common for people to have two or even three marriage ceremonies. That's to say, if you're a, you have a Shinto one, a Buddhist one, and a, a Christian one, blank face. So this particular, this is some time ago, I don't know if the work was ever published, scholar, I got the definite impression, was not aware that the idea of religion in which we tend to have here, in which belonging to religion excludes membership or participation in other religions, is culturally highly specific. It just isn't found in many countries of the world. Uh, until recently, um, uh, there were quite a few people in India who used to have shrines in their gardens with saints, in, and some of them would be Hindu and others would be Sufis. And actually, I'm told by Indian friends, often they didn't know the difference. Um, so when we talk about religion and non-religion, it's very important to be self-critical and to not to fall into the trap of thinking we know what we are talking about, because we very often don't. Now, where does that put me? Well, as I mentioned, I don't belong to religion, any religion. I never have. Um, and I take, uh, I mean, I would describe myself as an atheist, but in a particular sense, which was um, developed, I think, and explained most clearly in a now almost forgotten, by a now almost forgotten um, Central European philosopher, who is, his position in the history of philosophy is that he's only ever known by a dismissive footnote in Wittgenstein's uh, Tractatus. Wittgenstein says, uh, uh, um, uh, says something about language, I think it's about language games, and he said language is a game, brackets, but not in Mountner's sense. So that was the end of Mountner. We never heard of him again. Uh, but Mountner, a very interesting writer, um, 
very interesting, uh, at one time quite influential, and he wrote a four-volume history of atheism. He described himself as an atheist. And the bottom line in his um, account of what atheism means is, he says, an atheist is someone who has no use for the concepts or categories of theism, just doesn't use them, doesn't need them. Um, not necessarily go around denying their belief content, which has been attached to them, but just doesn't use them. And in this respect, very interestingly, Mountainer says that some of the mystics that Giles was talking about, he particularly mentions Meister Eckhart, but there are many others in um, Eastern Orthodoxy and indeed within, even within Catholicism in Western Christianity. Um, he says these people can be described as being, in, in this sense, atheists because they in the tradition of negative or apophatic theology deny that even the predicate of existence can be attached to God. God is something or a realm of uh, reality or of human experience about which actually nothing can be said. It doesn't mean nothing can be done or nothing can be intimated or practiced but nothing can actually be said in, in the form of proposition. So Mautner, as I say, himself an atheist in this sense um, thinks that if, uh, being an atheist means you just don't have any use for those categories. And so that could be because you held some apophatic version of theology, which could be um, Christian in its historical lineage, or it could be non-Christian. And of course, in this sense, there are atheist religions. Um, certainly, some Buddhist traditions would fall into that category, quite emphatically denying anything like a creator god or a or, or a soul doctrine or anything of that kind. And some modern religions uh, would also fall into this category. For example, in my last book on the Immortalization Commission, I did quite a bit of work on um, reading on 19th and 20th century spiritualism. And one of the interesting features of that is some of the spiritualists in the 19th century and 20th century described themselves as atheists, others as agnostics, some as deists, but some as atheists. And what they meant by that was their view was that it was simply a natural fact that some part of the human animal or the human individual went off after death and that it was simply a natural fact that um, there was another world to which humans passed. Now, I find this incredible because I don't see why we're, uh, um, humans should be distinguished from the rest of um, primates in this respect. If we go on... What about the other primates? What about my beloved cat? What about uh, why is it just us? I don't think that was never really explained. And um, what do we do, as it were, when we get there? Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the point is that um, atheism, in this sense, can be compatible with a wide variety of different positions. You can be an apophatic theologian, a mystic, or you can take the position I adopt myself, I mean, which is, I suppose, a type of naturalism. That's to say I view religion as part of the natural history of the human animal. The family of different activities and practices and experiences of which, which constitute religion in the broadest sense is part of what it means to be human. So the idea of eliminating religion from human life is, seems to me it's been on the, on, the, on the par with eliminating language or eliminating um, sexuality. Um, it's just part of what it makes us the kind of um, creature we are. So, by the way, uh, that sort of sort of connects, in a way, uh, with what Charles was saying about debating. He says he has great difficulty debating 
certain type of atheists. Well, I don't have that difficulty at all because I never debate them. Um, I'm not interested in debate in this context because I don't think debate is a good way to get to the truth. I think the truth in these matters is quite elusive and subtle and hard to get at. What I've learned from conversations with people, Christians, Hindus, Jewish thinkers, Buddhists, and varieties of others, has been in conversations in which neither was trying to convert or even to persuade the other. We're simply pursuing an exploratory conversation. That's where I've learned the most. So I don't myself want to persuade anyone else of what I think or of my view of things. And so I don't belong to that group, although I call myself an atheist, I don't belong to that group of evangelical atheists who engage in what I would call atheist apologetics, trying to get the world to adopt a certain catechism of unbelief in the belief that the world would be a better place. I don't care what other people believe, so I don't care to convert them. What I'm interested in is exploring for myself and with others who are similarly interested ways of thinking about religion which which are helpful, humanly helpful, which are illuminating, and which um, enable us to understand better why we think what we do and how we might explore that or even change it if we want to, but certainly not to reach some fixed position and certainly not to persuade or convert anyone to what I think. Uh, so what I'll do just briefly before I end is say a little bit more about atheism and um, then uh, uh, conclude as to where we are now. One of the things I think it's important to realize is that um, the present debates about atheism or present dialogue or discourse about atheism, it's not the first time this has happened, of course, that there's been debate. There was a lot in England in the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century around Darwinism. But if you look at um, opposition, if you look at atheism in a broader sense as meaning, not as I try to define it rather rigorously following Mountner as having no interest in the categories of theism and just not using them, but in a, in a sense of rejecting, actively rejecting certain elements of, or the, or the core elements of the dominant monotheistic traditions of, of the West and of Europe, of Europe within um, Christianity, uh, um, Judaism and, and Islam, is that it's been associated with a wide variety of different political, metaphysical and moral um, uh, positions. Uh, one of the things which is sort of frustrating, if I did engage in debates, would be frustrating, uh, um, about the present situation is that it's assumed by nearly all atheists that atheism and liberalism go together. That if you're an atheist, you'll have broadly liberal humanist values. Well, historically, that's absolutely not the case. Historically speaking, atheists have been very, very varied, ranging from the uh, far left, Bakunin, Lenin, through to the far right, Charles Morat, the um, head of the uh, Action Francaise, the ultra-nationalist um, anti-Semitic organization in interwar, interwar France, was a very pronounced atheist, but he thought along the lines of Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor that religion was good for the masses. So he was very strongly pro the church. Um, uh, uh, Nietzsche, of course, was an atheist, but certainly not a liberal because he thought liberalism was an inheritance from Christianity. So he was an anti-liberal atheist. Um, uh, there's no necessary or, or historical connection between atheism and humanism. I mean, I suppose what humanism means is something like 
in this context a belief in the value of human beings and in the possibility of them morally progressing in some way. But there are lots of lots of atheists historically who haven't believed that. Schopenhauer, who I rather like in many ways, was an atheist in this sense and rather anti-clerical. He was adamantly opposed and rejected any kind of ideas of a creator god, adamantly rejected the idea of individual human souls, for example. Um, but he certainly wasn't a humanist. He didn't think that there was progress in history or that humanity could progress. And he thought that as well, that was, history was a kind of nightmare. So I think actually within the connection between atheism and humanism, as far as I can tell as an historian of ideas, was most firmly made by John Stuart Mill, who was very influenced by Auguste Comte when Comte invented what he called the religion of humanity. And the religion of humanity was basically a kind of successor creed to Christianity. So Comte took the view, rather later, later like Morat. Comte was an anti-liberal, like Morat. He wasn't a fascist, but Morat was. But uh, he was an anti-liberal. He thought that um, Christianity was a spent force, that it had many superstitious <coughs> and irrational features attached to it. But that religion responded, the practice, of the practice or the phenomena of religion, responded to human needs that wouldn't go away. So some kind of new religion was necessary. The, 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 the uh, religion of humanity, a view which has recently been revived by Alain de Botton, and who mentions Comte in his new book, and also like uh, he wants to set up temples of humanity. There was one not far from here, actually, in the uh, right up to, into the 20th century, some in Liverpool, and until recently in Brazil. Um, so it's not the first time we've had that, but the connection between atheism and humanism is not a necessary one in terms of the ideas or values, and it's not historically actually any, in any way uh, invariant. So, now, why is that important? Because there might be people who say, I don't care what the history of ideas says. I know what I think. Why should I care about what Comte thought or Nietzsche thought? Or, uh, well, I guess one reason is that um, if you think that your position, if it's in that of an atheist or a Christian, leads to certain good results, that is benign or beneficial, then it might be useful to look at cases where something like that position does not lead to those results. And here again, I mean, I, uh, I'm sort of, just as I'm, I strongly criticize those, differ at least from those Christians who say, well, you can't associate Christianity with all these unpleasant features because Christianity is a religion of love, it's got nothing to do with it. Well, there might be some elements of Christianity that do have something to do with it. And I think that's also true of um, those forms of atheism which have sprung from Christianity. People who say atheism had absolutely nothing to do with Soviet tyranny or absolutely nothing to do with Mao or had nothing to do with Hitler or nothing, et cetera, et cetera. The essence of it was quite different. I'm not interested in the essence. The essence is, a, is an apologetic invention that someone comes with, up with later to try and preserve the core of the idea from criticism. I think Christianity was implicated in many of the great crimes and forms of oppression and misogyny, homophobia, and all the rest of it. And I also think um, certain types of atheism were implicated in um, some modern forms of repression. Um, so I'll conclude by saying then that, I mean, for me, the, the key thing really is to, be, to question what we're talking about and ask whether we we know what we're talking about. And I don't think we can do that without knowing some facts. But I think also what's very important is that we 
even though there are many who just don't want to know, they're not interested in the history of thought. I don't think we can actually do this properly unless we know how previous generations of Christians, previous generations of atheists, previous generations of humanists, in all their variety, so many, many different versions of, of this, of, of all these thinkers have thought about these things. I close, I close by, as well, the, one of the thinkers I most admire and revere in the history of thought is David Hume, a Scottish skeptic. And he, um, in his uh, Dialogues on Natural Religion, um, although he suffered somewhat up in Scotland for his religious skepticism, he never debated religion with anyone. He invented dialogues. And in one of the dialogues, he imagines he comes up with a position I find quite plausible. He's thinking, uh, I don't subscribe to it, I don't believe in it, in quotes, but it's, I find it quite a plausible view. He says, uh, he has himself, the skeptic, say, well, you know, possibly when we think about the world and where it came from, if it came from anywhere, maybe it was invented, maybe it was created, maybe it was made or fashioned by a juvenile, an infantile, or a senile god who, having made it, forgot all about it. And if I had no particular interest in humans, had no particular interest in the fate of the world, went on to do other things, perhaps, uh, invent other worlds or uh, do other things that gods do. And I've always found that actually a rather compelling creation story. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you both very much. Um, let me just uh, start off the, the conversation uh, between the two of you by asking a, um, a question or by trying to kind of link together these, uh, these, these very thoughtful uh, sets of reflections. Um, and, then, and then we'll let you talk and then take uh, questions from, from the audience. But um, I mean, I, I wonder, it, it's interesting that it would be the philosophical investigations that, that, that you would be um, uh, drawn to, um, and and maybe given the way that Wittgenstein's work is periodized into the Tractatus and, and philosophical investigations, with the Tractatus being represented as this as this you know text which is going to solve everything, and the philosophical investigations saying there's nothing to solve, you know, taking the exact opposite yep. view, um, and it, it makes me think about the, the point that you raised, John, about essentialism. Um, you sound, I, I loved how anthropological you, you, you sounded, and, and certainly uh, anthropologists in, in these kinds of settings, uh, and, and indeed others, like to point out that, in fact, this idea of belief is a, is a very specific kind of understanding of what constitutes religion, and it's one with a, with a, a particular kind of Protestant history which in, in many ways has been tied to uh, colonial expansion and therefore been replicated uh, in, in other parts of the, wor of, of the world. But um, when you say that there's, you know, you're taking this anti-essentialist stance, that, you know, there's nothing essential to, to what, what we can say religion is or, or atheism indeed, um, I wonder, Giles, if, if there is anything essential for, for you. I mean, you're a Christian. Don't you have any... Well, yes, but I mean, I, definitely. But so I would now talk about, uh, I would talk in cringing, cringingly evangelical terms about, um, you know, the Gospels and the stories and Christ. And I mean, that's, so I want to talk in a language that's intrinsic to, I would talk the sermon language, which is not the, the language of church, which I think is the language where um, faith, 
yeah, speaks the language that's natural to itself. So I, 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 I am reluctant to try and um, repot that language in in an entirely different sort of tradition and think that it that it works. I mean, part of the problem with the word belief when it's taken out of that context um, is that there isn't really any necessary connection between belief and being religious. You can believe in God without being... You can actually have no use for it, even if you believe in God, even if you believe in God's existence. I was out for a curry with my mate um, Martin Rosen, who's a cartoonist for The Guardian um, the other day, who's a member of the National Secular Society or something like that, one of the bigwigs there. And he said, even if God walked through the door in the curry house even if God walked through the door and I was completely persuaded that that was God and that God exists I'd still call myself an atheist I'd still call myself an atheist and I completely understood that I thought that was I think that was completely right it didn't even matter whether to him his atheism wasn't premised on the fact that he thought God exists or God doesn't exist God can exist but I don't care I mean that's a and that seems to be I mean I think Nietzsche um, was actually in that position I think Nietzsche was completely indifferent to the question of whether God existed or not, he just thought that if he did, he was a bastard. I mean, you know, and so that was the basis on which his atheism existed. So there, there are various forms of rejection, and I agree with John that the sort of, in a way, the fundamental form of rejection is probably indifference. Have you got use for these categories? Do they shape you? Do they, do they you know, are you going to go to the gallows for them or are you going to, uh, do they shape your life? Are you going to, are they involved, rooted in forms of practice or are they things for which you have no use for? Now that's a, that's a very, that's I think the sort of really fundamental sort of distinction, which is atheism is the sort of, you know, the proper, that's the, that's the crack cocaine of atheism, really. That's the, that's the sort that you can't... That's, that's its purest form. But, but oddly enough, as Mountner, Mountner pointed out, it could, it could coexist with the most intense spirituality. I mean, let's just say what, I mean, what Mountner says is that Meister Eckhart and a number of the Christian mystics, but if he'd known about them, he could have also mentioned Buddhist and other mystics, <coughs> might have no time for the... Uh, you, the concepts or the categories, the ideas, the beliefs of, of theism, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. still, in some sense, have not just in some sense, but have very elaborate, long-standing, millennial and longer spiritual traditions which they practice. It um, and some of those could involve the kinds of narratives that evangelical Christians talk about, yeah, yeah. and others wouldn't. I guess there is, I guess, you know, in a way what we might be sort of slippering around here, I mean, and I, th I think it's sort of what probably occurred to some of you is, and it would, it would certainly have occurred to those of you who might situate yourself as belonging in uh, a, a doctrinal Christian or what I would call a doctrinal atheist uh, camp, which is a question of truth. And that's where we get back to, you know, because get back to the idea, we're back to the idea, are the beliefs true or not? And of course what that presupposes is the is a kind of um, pre-Wittgensteinian or non-Wittgensteinian or non, a kind of a form of realism in which what religion, like other forms of human thought, if you think this about science, not all, perhaps the majority of scientists nowadays, and science, philosophers of science, sorry, uh, don't hold to forms of strong realism. But if you think that, if you're a strong realist about scientific method, if you think that what it's trying to do is to develop a theory of the world which ideally uniquely matches the world, that's what science is, you might say. Then you would say, well, religion is, uh, 
is a, a different way of different type of thought, maybe inferior to the extent that it involves truth claims of this kind. Now, there are various ways of dealing with that apparent asymmetry. One way is to take the view that Wittgenstein and some of his followers took, which is to say that, and some non-Wittgensteinians also take, science isn't like that. Uh, um, science is a much more kind of complicated thing. Imre Lakatos here at LSE, a kind of uh, heterodox uh, follower of Karl Popper, developed a kind of highly complex form of philosophy of scientific method, which although he wanted it to retain a kind of realist commitment uh, to matching the truth, matching the way the world is, it was pretty um, tenuous by the time he got it. So um, I think once we start, I think we've started in exactly the right way. I mean, I wholly share what um, uh, Giles was saying. We should start by trying to uh, critically interrogate and to a large extent, I would say, um, disinvest ourselves from ideas of belief in, in, this, in the sense of being like, like a scientific theory. Or I would even say, because it's not only, by the way, the Protestant yeah. Western religious tradition. I mean, after all, Aquinas, the intellectual core of Catholicism, sought as his, uh, his um, project, his intellectual project, to, to uh, give a kind of um, uh, philosophical underpinning in the sense that Aristotle or other Greek philosophers would have recognized of a theistic view of the world. So it's more, in more explicit in Eastern Orthodoxy, you get the idea of the incomprehensibility of God, the ineffability of God, the rejection, the scornful rejection of, um, of theology as itself being an almost inferior activity and, 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 and so on. Um, but I, what, I'm, no, what I'm saying is I think the, the first thing to, to really focus on is the one that Giles did, which is to focus on um, the way in which belief, partly modelled on science, scientific theory, and partly, I would say, ultimately modelled on Socratic ideas of inquiry, to use all the way back to the patron saint of Western rationalism, Socrates, the way in which that's, uh, they've come together to create a very clogged discourse yeah. about religion, one yeah. which is anthropologically eccentric, yeah. one which is anthropologically not just specific, but actually quite unusual in the history of the species. Mm. Interesting about Aquinas, of course. Aquinas has that... Um, uh, I mean, you would have thought that there would be the sort of... In, in one way, it's the sort of high point of a particular sort of philosophical... And yet... Um, and yet, Aquinas says, um, uh, imagine you uh, go on this mad project of counting up all the things that existed in the world. Uh, all the sorts of different things. is clouds and chairs and tables and and people and animals and so you have a mad project all the <coughs> sorts of things that exist and you've completed this list and then you go uh, right at the end when you've completed this list um, you say oh no God's not I haven't put God on the list uh, would God be on the list and Aquinas goes no God would not be on the list God is not um, a thing in the same way that tables and chairs or even clouds or so it's not on that list of things that exist in the world so even there you have this the connection between, as it were, belief, truth, existence, which is a very yeah. complicated, very complicated. It's a very complicated combination, and and I'm, and my reluctance here is to try and begin to sort it all out at the level of a philosophical question yeah. Yeah. that. Uh, only until I've solved the great puzzles of Western thought do I feel able to 
get on my knees or whatever like well, that, which is, I, I, it can't, it just can't be that way round for me. Well, I was reading actually yesterday a wonderful poem by John Ashbury, American poet, mm. probably to my mind the greatest living English-speaking poet. It's called A Philosophy of Life. And he said one morning he woke up and decided to have a philosophy of life. He hadn't had one until now. He looked <laughs> back at his right. life, he said, exactly I, right. he looked back at his life and he thought, how the hell could I have gotten this old without having one? I don't know how I've even managed to get to yeah. get to. So he said, well, I'll have one. And so he tries to sort of work himself up into having one. He said, he said well, if I have it, well, I have it all the time when I go swimming, when I go to the bathroom, when I have, will, will, will all my activities be mediated through this philosophy? Well, yeah, I suppose so. He said, I suppose I will have to. Uh, said, but what about all these other people? They don't seem to have had one either, many of them, and uh, certainly not the one I haven't yet found. And at the end of the poem, where he hasn't found anything at all, he says, well, at least, at least I've been thinking about a philosophy of life, and at least I've sort of pondered it, and so I can go back to living as I did before, but wiser. Um, that's, that's, is a philosophy of Christianity required to be a Christian? That's exactly right, and I think the answer to that is no. Uh, or put it more generally, yeah. is a philosophy of anything required to be a a yeah. successful or flourishing human being, my answer is no. Exactly right. Now, what I go against in that respect, of course, is Socrates. Because there is a certain view which says an unexamined life is a life not worth living. That's the Socratic view. So we should all be philosophers. Now, I'm not anti-philosophical in the sense that I think no one should philosophize or that it's a waste of time. But it's not a precondition for living a good life. So there are countless people <coughs> who live good lives um, who know nothing of philosophy. So there is a kind of, so I think there's a kind of intellectualist distortion um, or even an intellectualist mythology. You might say, well, yes, throughout his life he was brave, she was resourceful, they stood up against tyranny, they, uh, uh, they were kind, they were self-sacrificing, they enjoyed their lives, they uh, were tremendously happy most of the time, the tragedies that befell them, they overcame and turned to value and meaning. Still, they really weren't successful. They didn't really know why they were doing all of this. They hadn't done any philosophy. They were human <laughs> failures. <laughs> well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, and so um, I think that's, you know, we need to be critical at this very fundamental level of the importance of um, uh, not just a belief, but of searching for the grounds of belief. Because let me just say one thing I think important. There are certain areas where I think it's very important to be evidence-based if we can. Medicine should be evidence-based. Law should be evidence-based. I've heard it said, Popper believed this. He thought that politics not only should but could be evidence-based. <laughs> Economics. Um, uh, it's sort of tricky, but there are areas of life where, you know, there are areas of human practice where we do better if we attended more to the evidence. There are penal policies that don't work in the sense that they don't deliver the results that those who implement them think they should, so we should look at the facts. So, But I, I don't think this, the area of um, what's broadly thought of in this vast way, the way in which, by the way, William James, I still think his is the best book written by a philosopher on religion. He was also a psychologist. This huge extended family of phenomena. Uh, 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 I don't think religion is in general with it, is, 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 um, is a kind of evidence-based type of reasoning. And yet, of course, it has become that with people <coughs> debating things like, um, you know, do the Dead Sea Scrolls undermine this particular narrative and so on and so forth. Can I, can I jump in and, and yeah. kind of link this here? But, but could you, I mean, could you, 
Couldn't you stretch that definition? I mean, it's one thing to talk about Heidegger and ontology, yeah. but it's another to say, well, where does the sun go? Uh, you know, at night, uh, wh where do the stars come from? Which, in fact, many people, maybe not everyone in you know uh, a Zimbabwean village asks, but indeed, many people do. I mean, the, the human species is, is an inquisitive species, so couldn't that count as? philosophizing in a sense but and, and if I can <clears throat> kind of pose that in relation to a question of Giles as well it, it seems to me I, I, I want to see if what you're saying is is tied to the debate that we often hear and I suspect it's not but I think it might be worth clarifying of course a lot of the debate about you know religion versus science comes down to well we're asking different you know these are these are different realms you know science asks how questions religion and philosophy ask why questions and I'm assuming that's not a, a, a kind of boundary drawing that you want you would want to defend is it? Okay so this is going to be uh, uh, this is where the point where I'm going to say the stupid thing um, to try and, try and illuminate <coughs> your position because I don't understand a lot of what's going on here um, but uh, um, uh, I, I mean I you know I could try and give the clever answer but I think it's more interesting to give the stupid answer and the stupid answer is, in the same way that John isn't interested in religion, I'm not interested in those scientific no, theism. questions. Mm. Okay, theism has to be interested in those things. It's drawn yeah. to me. Yeah. But, um, and what I mean by that is, I suppose, what um, uh, fascinates me about faith, what keeps me um, drawn to it, what makes it a part of my life, is, as much as anything, this isn't quite right, but... Uh, is what it illustrates about the human condition, what it tells me about me, what it tells me about other people, and so forth. And so, when we're talking about, you know, the sun disappearing behind the moon, or whatever, whatever it is, um, there's a part of me that, uh, until I get how that connects <coughs> up with mm. these bigger questions, I'm like, well, that's a fascinating thing about the world. That's very, I'm very, really, really glad you're doing it. Now, back to this. Um, I'm not interested in that sense. So, I don't have, uh, I don't have that sense of, I mean, and, and so, I mean, when, when Job is talking about mm. the nature of, of the world and the cosmos. He definitely is talking about something that is, uh, that, that's illustrative and uh, you know, sort of existentially vibrant for him. Um, that, that is, that is that. So it's not that you don't use those references. It's not that you don't, um, it's just that, it, it's like Martin Rosen and God walking in the room. It's like, well, that exists. Good, I'm glad that exists. But there's nothing that I do with all of that, emotionally, spiritually, existentially, whatever. Mm. I don't do anything with that. So I don't. So the conflict doesn't exist on the level where I feel any sort of conflict. And I think mm. if I can add to that something, I think this would be consistent with what you've just said, Charles. But of course, it involves using a word which is as slippery as religion, namely myth. Mm. What myths are? Um, I mean, whatever myths are, I think they're not just primitive scientific theories. If you read 19th century thought, if you read The Golden Bough by J.G. Fraser, once a tremendously successful book still in print, find it often in discount shops, by the way, um, a very interesting book to read. What he treats myth, after the fashion of <coughs> Auguste Comte and the positivists by whom he was very influenced, as an early form of science, now we've got science, we don't need myths anymore. People may have believed that, that when thunder was going on, there was a huge god stamping his foot somewhere. We don't know. We know that's not true anymore. There's an electrical storm up there, etc., etc. Now, whatever myths are, they're not that, or certainly not only that, because think of a myth like uh, the myth of Icarus, 
or for that matter, the myth of um, Genesis in the Bible. Um, they can uh, connect up with these human engagements, connect up with these deep human responses to recurring human dilemmas of which you're talking about, and do connect, both of them, mm, actually, mm, mm. entirely regardless of <clears throat> any, so to speak, um, proto-scientific content yeah. that might have had. And in the case of the biblical myth, I think it goes, it's as early, maybe as early as Augustine who says it mustn't be read literally. Doesn't Augustine say that, of the Genesis myth somewhere? And, and I mean, the, the rabbis. I mean, the, the rabbis said that, yes, the they, before the that, yeah. yeah. It must not be read literally. So the idea of saying, well, look, ridiculous, wasn't created in seven days, or etc. a particular time. Never meant, never meant that way. But even if some myths did have that proto-scientific intent or content, that's not their human meaning. So I think um, what is important, and to this extent I share um, Giles's interest in, in Wittgenstein, um, Wittgensteinian thought, um, is, is to be able to recognize powerful forms of human thought that don't disappear with the advance of knowledge. Yeah. I say, however much human knowledge advances, there will be other types of thinking which will be, including mythic thinking. And the mythic thinking, and this is a rather important point, might often appear in the form of science or pseudoscience. The 20th century is full of pseudosciences. What distinguished Nazism was not just its genocidal goals and its hideous prejudices, but that they claimed them to be based in science, a science of racism. Now, I think we can see that to be a perverse and malign and toxic mythology, but at the time it was represented as um, a science. So I think only by um, recognizing that there are forms of human thought which don't retreat as knowledge advances will we be able to actually have a chance of identifying spurious claims to knowledge which are in fact forms of degenerate mythical thinking working out themselves out through science maybe in, uh, in, unless there's something about which you're not profoundly indifferent uh, <laughs> and want to say to one another we can go to questions from the floor yeah. is there any any other burning thoughts no, that, I, I, I want to just have one point of uh, just just say one thing before we do that and um because just to sort of break up some of the uh, agreement that we have, because and one of the things, um, it, uh, one of the things I've always been fascinated with what uh, for me what losing faith would look like, given this is what faith is for me. Mm. So what does a loss of faith look like? And my experience of that, um, and I've had an experience of that, which is um, when I was uh, newly ordained, um, I worked in a council estate in Warsaw, and I um, I, I took a just you know out of on my own and I took a very very awful funeral of a child um, which was uh, depressingly shocking and awful and um, uh, for the for the sort of days after that various weeks after that I was I would have described myself I found it very difficult to say the creed I found the whole uh, I, I was um, I, I was crossed with a sort of depression about it and a sort of anger and so forth, um, and, and I would have left the church had it not been my job. <laughs> so it's a very odd thing when you think this is it. It's all complete rubbish. Okay, I was definitely the week after. But 
Um, I've got to go to church on Sunday morning because it's my job to celebrate the Eucharist. And I'm not just going to find the bishop and say, can't do the job. So you're celebrating the Eucharist. You're behind the altar. You're celebrating the Eucharist. And you think it's all, you think it's all rubbish. And that's your job to do. And then you do it. And you think, well, I'm going to stick at it just to see what happens. And stick at it for just a little while. And the interesting thing, as it happened to me, is that, as it were, my love and passion uh, for it came back. But it came back in a way um, over time when I wasn't watching again. And what's really interesting is that um, it says something about the nature of belief. I, if, if you'd have taken a sort of scan of my brain, would it have told you, as it were, what the beliefs were at any particular time? I'm, so, I'm, not, thinking, I'm not thinking about whether I believe in God. Do I believe in God? You know, if I'm not thinking about it. What does that mean when, in terms of what is the content of your... And so for that, that gap... Was it like a light bulb that was sort of flashing on and off before it went on or before it went off? That's obviously the wrong thing as well. It's something about, I was very pleased at that time, and the creed, we said we believe in God the Father, and that I was a part of the church and they were saying it for me. But it's very interesting how belief is embedded in worshipping community, and that's what makes sense of it. Um, that's what roots something that I would call belief, almost like, more like a social than an individual phenomenon. Um, uh, but th th there is something called losing faith. But it isn't like uh, someone turns off a switch or you, you know, you'll prove to me on a piece of paper that all my beliefs are rubbish. Or changing a theory. Yeah, you could, you could believe to me all my beliefs are rubbish and it wouldn't <clears throat> stop me believing in God. Mm. I mean, that's the nature of the, the way it's not a theory. Mm. Well, I'll just say, uh, Graham Greene's account of his conversion <clears throat> in a couple of sentences, he took uh, 18 months instruction with a... Uh, priest who, Catholic priest who was a former actor, uh, rather fat, he said, and loved his drink and food. Um, and at the end of that 80 months, he said, the, act, the uh, priest came up with a uh, really powerful, irrefutable argument for the, for, for the existence of God. He then joined the church, and when he later wrote this up and was asked about the interviews, he was asked what that was. He said, well, I can never remember. Uh, <laughs> and, and later he... Of course, that's green green. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, what later, what, later, what he said was he liked this actor. He said this actor had a power of mysterious goodness, which was somehow connected with the actor, the former actor, now yeah. priest, faith. Yeah. That's what did it actually. Yeah. That's why he couldn't remember whatever it was that. It could have been rubbish, what he said. Yeah. Well, it could have been complete rubbish. Yeah, but it doesn't mm. matter. Mm. Do no, it doesn't matter. Mm. That might be rather shocking to. Uh, mm some people but I think it's an interesting uh, I think it's I think it's a realistic and interesting uh, story great so well why don't we uh, go to questions um, I see that the, 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 the gallery has sh two hands have shot up immediately so we'll take these these two questions uh, t together um, and then uh, if you could uh, announce who you are and if you have any affiliation or Particularly interesting identity, that would be good to say as well. <laughs> or beliefs. Or, or beliefs, yeah. I'm David Evans. I, I have a, a long history of studying philosophy, philosophy and translating Plato and Plotinus. And I would like philosophers and priests to replace theism with Gaia and with a bit of luck, you've heard of this word Gaia as James Lovelock's concept of 
of a, a different way of looking at life on Earth and it, it, as homeostasis, and and it's quite possible to translate Plato and Plotinus in terms of Gaia as as this homeostasis and feedback mechanisms, but that's never been done as far as I know, and I would like philosophers and priests to do that. Yes, and then the uh, gentleman here. Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. My question is uh, addressed, uh, addressed to both speakers. I would like to know what do you think of the so-called new militant atheists who insist on converting people. If there, is there one last question from the from from the top here that we can? Okay. Well, why don't you uh, take those? Then? Gaia and militant. Well, I didn't hear a question with Gaia. <coughs> I didn't hear a question, Volk. I mean, I, um, so I mean, I don't know anything about Gaia, so I really can't comment about that. I mean, the new atheist phenomenon is 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 I think very different. I mean, uh, I, I'll, I've debated quite a lot with um, with Rich Dawkins and um, with AC Grayling and a number of um, uh, Harris and so forth. Um, when I when I talk to when I talk to Anthony Grayling, I remember the question I really want to ask him is, uh, why did he marry his wife? And the reason I want to ask him that question is that the uh, um, the experience I had the night before I got married, and I've said this to him before, was that um, we went for a, I got married in in the cathedral in Ripon, and my uh, brother took me out for a curry the night before and got a piece of paper. It was a napkin, and he said, right, I'm going to just do my duty as your best man, draw a line down the middle. Pro, con, <laughs> um, and would you list? And Darwin did a version of this. Would you list all the good, uh, you know, reasons, proper reasons, you know, empirically verifiable reasons that you get married to your wife, and all the sort of reasons, that, you know, all, all the ones against it, and so forth. Do that properly, though, as it were. So, what goes down the pro line? Um, oh dear, this is oh so, you know, what she, what she's gorgeous, and all the things that blah blah. blah. But you think, does everything on does that pro line? The things that you can say about it add up to, I'm going to marry my wife. No. It doesn't seem to me that I can rationally convince myself or anybody else that a list of reasons like this could be sufficient for lots of plus signs to equal get married to. So there's a point at which you just sort of do, that it isn't. And for me, faith is you know, like falling in love in as much as... Uh, and you don't quite know what you're doing when you do it, when you get married. I mean, that's true. If people knew what it was like to get married, they may not get married. <laughs> and I think that's probably true of being a part of the church as well. And, and you know, actually being a part of the church and being married is a very, is a very long-standing um, uh, Christian uh, relationship and so forth. So if I say to people who are sort of like uberly rational about things, you know, why did you do something like marry your wife? That's the question I want, sort of question I want to know. Can you give me, in the same terms that you expect me to say why you're a Christian, the same sort of equivalent to why you married your wife? And I, I find it very frustrating there isn't, a, there isn't equivalent. So I, I find this a sort of talking past mm. that goes on with new atheism. The controversial thing I'd say is that there is a certain sort of new atheism that comes in after 9-11. I mean, there's one that selfish gene is very interesting how that 
Um, I mean, these are things that people will suck their teeth about. But there is, I think, an interesting relationship between the selfish gene and Thatcherism at the time, and I'd quite like to explore that. I don't know what the connections are, but I think there is an interesting connection between those two. I think there's also an interesting connection between, between new atheism and sort of post-9-11. I think a lot of people, you go on Twitter, uh, and a lot of people who describe themselves as atheists, you've only got a few words what you describe yourself as. And people would use atheists now increasingly amongst the very few words that you have to describe yourself. I wonder why people are so passionate. Why don't they just, like, not care? I mean, why, why would you have that as one of your sort of, like, really sort of central self-definitions? It's because religion is seen as something increasingly uh, dangerous uh, in various different guises. And I think people, I think some people um, would, see, would associate that with uh, a sort of post-9-11 uh, um, uh, fear of Islam and uh, I worry about I worry about those connections that exist there well I'll try on Gaia I, I do know a bit about Gaia theory I'm not a biologist and I do know Lovelock and I have tremendous um, admiration for him and for the theory which sounds plausible but I don't think it ought to or that he intends it to to replace or substitute for spirituality or religion it's, 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 a, it's a part of science it has some of the functions of myth in certain respects but it's a key thing you know people who talk about it kind of as a way of adopting a, um, a view of the world <coughs> which in some sense um, gives metaphysical comfort I don't think I've really thought about it because the key thing about the Gaia theory is that Gaia to the extent that there is such a, an entity doesn't care about humans that if humans become a nuisance it will remove them from the system so as distinct from because um, it, it's homeostatic the way that it was described uh, so that if humans become too disturbing then something will happen climate change or something else and they'll be either at least greatly reduced to number or even extinguished. And I guess one of the key things about all religions or everything we can recognize as a religion, including atheist religions, is that they do serve uh, a human need for meaning. They do serve a need to be able to find our lives fulfilling and meaningful, however you regard that meaning as a discovery of something beyond humans or whether you think of it as a human creation, as a form of human making. And Gaia doesn't actually sustain that. So, I mean, that I would be much, I have huge interest in and admiration for that, but I don't think it really should substitute for religion. As to the very militant types of atheism now, well, I mean, any of you who have read anything I know know what I think about that. I think I interpret those types of atheism. And remember, <coughs> there are many others. There's the mountain type, there's the type that uh, the Spanish American philosopher. George Santayana, a strong atheist, held himself, but a kind of naturalistic atheism which admires religion, sees religion as a, an integral human activity, sees religion, he says, it's closer to poetry and music than it is to science or logic or philosophy. Uh, there are lots and lots of different types of atheism, but this, uh, and I am one myself, but that this type of militant um, atheism, or, or I prefer to call it evangelical atheism, which really wants to convert the world and sees that as somehow producing a, an improvement in the world, seems to me to be modelled on some of the more dogmatic and fundamentalist type, the literalist types of Christianity. Um, 
but without the, the interesting and uh, 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 stories, myths, and also the psychological realism of Christianity. Because one of the key things about Christianity is that although it holds out a, a salvific problem, it's, it, it accepts that humans are radically flawed. That's to say it responds to the experience that humans have had in all different cultures all throughout human history, whereby they are somehow inwardly divided and promises some kind of um, solution. It's psychologically realistic in that way in which the, um, and all of that kind of transcendental element, all of the mystery, all of the, uh, is taken out. And what you instead have is, is an evangelical project. And that's what, well, that, I mean, if you say, what I dislike <coughs> about it, uh, about this type of atheism, apart from, yeah, apart from its um, bullying character, which I think it has often, and apart from the fact that it's not often very theologically literate or illiterate in the history of ideas, is that it is an evangelical project, but without the transcendental and the mysterious aspect, and without the, the kind of the roots in a particular story. So that's so. I mean, that's what I uh, uh, I find. I mean, you can't really debate that. If someone is just partly as a result of 9/11 or some other, is just committed to the view that if they can only get the world to embrace a certain belief system or system of unbelief, that everything will be substantially better. Good luck to them. I just don't want any part of it. Just one brief uh, just, uh, quickly, to yeah. that, which is to say that I've just come back from How the Light Gets In Festival in, um, in Hale Moy, which is very interesting. Um, and um, there's people, um, the theology is, you know, the new atheist says, this sort of phenomenon has defeated theology, I think they think that's, but they've got new targets now, so philosophy is the new target. So Lewis Walport says that philosophy is a, a no content, doesn't exist, and there's no such thing. And, and there, was, there was someone there talking about there is no truth in King Lear. There was a whole thing about, you know, truth doesn't exist in King Lear. And I was like, and now this is where I'm starting to think this, 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 the, the evangelical nature of the project is such that any form of discourse that is not its own discourse, that's not reliant on its own sort of grammar and so forth, is dismissed as being untrue. Mm. Twenty years ago, we would have recognised that as a line from Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, um, we, we have time for uh, three, I think, uh, three, three more questions. Um, I'll take um, uh, Elizabeth down here, uh, the, 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 the young man uh, back there, and then uh, this, this man here in the red shirt. Great. Uh, I'm Elizabeth. I'm from Theos. And I think, I don't know if you'd be interested that uh, Tom Waits has a song called God's Away on Business. Um, and that kind of Deus Abscondatus theme comes up a lot in Christian theology, the idea that God's away on business. And it, it's been something the church has circled around. Um, I think that what we're teasing out here is this false dichotomy between belief and practice of belief and belonging. Yeah. And that's because we conceive of belief in a very kind of rationalistic, enlightenment way. And Giles has been great at saying for most people, actually, it's not. It's experiential and relational. So I just wanted to kind of put it out there. Could we just all agree that religion is not about either belief or belonging, that there's too much enmeshment going on there to kind of dissect the two, and then we could move past it? <laughs> yeah, and then the, uh, yeah. Um, just in relation to John, what you were saying about um, the mountain of design of atheism um, and how it's based on the use of God. Um, and if you have no use of God, then you are part of this belief. Um, I was just wondering, as one example, um, in religion, when you have undergone the loss of a dear one in your life, um, currently you may feel that you are okay in your own life 
with the loss of yourself. Um, so you're happy with knowing you will be buried um, once you're dead uh, in, in the dirt. But I wonder, when, when you undergo the irrational state, um, once you have lost the dear one, whether you find some pleasant experience with the knowledge they may live on in a different sense. And I wonder, because there is almost that pleasure is kind of an empirical benefit, that it brings use to religion and therefore kind of um, it foregoes the mountain design because there is some use. Hmm. Okay, and then I'm afraid it'd have to be the final final question. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Carvey. Um, I was listening through the very interesting talk and I kept thinking it's become fashionable in many ways I think justifiably so to dismiss the new atheist um, attack let's say and I think it's fair enough to say that I think this I mean the, the core reasoning is overly simplistic in that science is equated to truth because it's evidence-based and faith is equated to falsity because it's not based on empiricism. I think we can accept that and we can all accept that rationalism is a more slippery concept than perhaps uh, Dawkins and A.C. Grayling and the like sometimes appear to assume. But I think there's one point that they make and I as an atheist share it um, and I'm not asking this in an accusatory way, but more I'm just keen to share, particularly what Giles would say on this, and that, that is, um, nevertheless, religious beliefs often seem arbitrary. Um, so, for example, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows the arguments to believe, given what we know of modern science, that a, in the case of Christianity, for example, that a man was raised from the dead however many thousand years ago seems incredible. Um, now I know today Charles' uh, uh, um, argument is well it's sort of irrelevant this doctrine whether it, I think the impression I got is whether it happened or not is almost irrelevant that it's about something faith is ineffable or something like which is fine but I think the, what many atheists are concerned about is a that many people of faith do literally believe in things that are empirically arbitrary, given what we know. And I'm not using the word irrational for, for my aforementioned reasons. And so the fear is, is if, for example, one believes in things that are so arbitrary, um, resurrection, not to be on Christianity, but in Islam's case, revelation on the mountains, and so on and so forth, then what else stops you from believing in other arbitrary things? There was a, if okay, I, let's start. That's a wonderful, yeah. that's, that's a great question. Let's um, uh, leave it there just because of the, the, the time. Um, okay, so Giles, do you want to um, yes, re reply? Yes, <laughs> uh, um, The immortality question, I, I just want one small observation, very interesting, is, and I'm sure John will say more about this, is that um, in the sort of popular religious imagination, People believe in, as it were, immortality much more, but they believe in God. In fact, they believe more in immortality. They believe in God. So there are a lot of people. You go, and, you go, and, you go, and, you go on visits, funeral visits, and people will say, "Don't go to church. Don't believe in that sort of stuff, really." But I know Uncle Johnny's looking down on me now. 
and you think how extraordinary that that's actually tied to. So when I want to talk about immortality, I want to talk about um, whatever that means, that it's an intrinsic characteristic of, of the divine and not something that can be separated, and that's something that would take a, a conversation uh, in and of itself. To this thing, I, to, to, to your point, which is an interesting point, um, no, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to produce any sort of wishy-washy. I believe in the resurrection. So, I mean, and I, I would, um, so I, you slightly mishear me if you say that I'm not interested in, I'm trying to back away from um, the sort of truth of that, but I want to talk about truth that's intrinsic to the discourse, intrinsic to the, the, the Christian tradition, not some sort of... Uh, not some sense of truth that's not so thick. I've got a theory about the resurrection. Um, but to say that I believe in the resurrection is, is as much to say I am shaped by it. Uh, it, is a, it, is a, it is a complete... I don't believe in it like I believe that radiator's on or not on. I mean, I can believe in that and not care a damn. Okay, I can't believe in the resurrection and not care a damn. So I definitely... I believe in it, but in a very different way to I might believe a theory about the world. Um, why I believe in it is because I think it's true. <laughs> um, now, I mean, you might say the arbitrary nature of that. The arbitrary nature, I mean, in a sense, there's a, there's, a, there's a personal explanation about where I've come from, the world in which I've been brought up in, the, what I can make sense of with that, with that um, description. But it doesn't seem to be entirely arbitrary. It seems to be rooted um, in my depth of my being. Okay, um, John, maybe just quickly to the question from the, the, the young man uh, about back here about uh, immortality. Uh, immortality, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess here yeah, I'm, I'm sort of slightly different from, from Giles. There are lots and lots of people have believed in um, that humans themselves and loved ones and others survive death who have had no. Um, uh, theistic beliefs. It's very common, actually. Yeah. Um, as, as you say, in the people you meet, but it's also there are whole kind of theories of it. So I don't find that, I don't find that in any way puzzling. I think, of course, we need to distinguish, as Giles would if he had time, uh, between everlastingness yeah. or going on mm. and immortality or eternal, eternal reality. They're quite different things. Mm. Um, um, I mean, I have a problem with. The idea that, I mean, the loss of bereavement is very, very profound. I mean, I think one aspect of religion is dealing with irrevocable loss. It's not the only aspect, because there's also gratitude for what you have and joy in being what. But one aspect of it is in dealing with what, as far as our natural lives are concerned, is irrevocable loss. Very, very, very tough to deal with. Um, and sometimes can't be wholly dealt with at all. Though, though, though. But there is a problem, I think, in the idea of that. Uh, if humans go on after death, then that kind of solves it, which is that you might find yourself in another world as arbitrary and unintelligible as this one. You know, we might find that, and, and as unjust, you might say, my God, you know, I'm 70 years down there, now I'm, now I'm here, and I look around, and just yeah. as bad as, just as chaotic as the previous one. So, I, actually, I don't think extending... You've got to take yourself with you, haven't you? That's the problem. <laughs> I don't actually think that extending the narrative does all that much. Mm. Um, uh, by 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 itself. So I think once again, what we need to begin to think of is, you know, what what these ideas of immortality or everlastingness, different, quite different from each other, you know, do for us. What the work they do, what role they have in our thinking, in in our needs. And it's certainly they're not just, or even primarily, um, theories. 
there's, some, or there's something different. Mm, okay. Well, uh, we could go on, but uh, why don't we go up and uh, have, a, have a drink? Uh, thank you all for coming, and thank you to Giles and John for watching.